Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, a show where we report, rebel, and you know we tell it just like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. Join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. On our show, History Matters, we examine the past as we think about and pivot to the future. And on this show, we are also thinking about histories of being denied, women being denied the positions that they have applied for, the pay that is owed to them. And these are histories that go back to colonialism and slavery and, and before But in modern times, what do these concerns mean? What does it mean to be left outside of the tent where, in fact, you've already purchased your ticket for entry? And there are many examples that we can think about within the American context and broader of girls and women being denied opportunities, platforms, and even more. And so I couldn't be more pleased than to have on this episode with me Professor Tracy Mears. She is the Walton Hale Hamilton Professor and a founding director of the Justice Collaboratory at Yale Law School. Before joining the faculty at Yale, she was a professor at the University of Chicago Law School. And you may have been familiar with her story of being denied the position of valedictorian when she was graduating from high school because of race. This is a story that is not unique to Professor Mears, but it is a powerful story that punches one right in the gut and that demands that we reflect on what do these issues mean in contemporary times? What does it mean when you've been denied an opportunity that was yours? What are the setbacks for women when that happens? How do we move ahead in light of social, political, and other forces that seek to hold women back? And what does this mean, not just for women? What does it mean for girls? What does it mean for other populations of people who are denied simply because of who they are? Being LGBTQ, having a disability, what more? These are really important issues for our time. So I couldn't be more pleased than for Professor Mears to share her story, which on one hand has its own inspirations in terms of the fabulous person that she is and the very distinguished position that she holds. And yet it's also heartbreaking too to listen to her story and to know that it is a story that has been repeated time and again. I'm just so grateful that she joined us for our On the Issues podcast. So sit back and take a listen. Thank you so much for joining us today for our On the Issues uh, platform, Professor Mears. I want to start off with just asking you a question about the, uh, the piece that came out in the Washington Post. Um, and it was a reflection on what happened to you uh, when you were in high school. Can you unpack for our listeners um, just what that was about becoming the valedictorian that wasn't, that was denied? Uh, Yes. Okay. Well, before I gear up for that story first, I want to thank you for inviting me to come and share my story. I always enjoy doing work with you, uh, Professor 
good one. And it's a rare opportunity to be able to talk with you in this space rather than the usual sort of heavy law um, materials we usually cover. Although this one's kind of heavy, at least for me. Yeah. So, um, so what happened, or at least the way I understood what was happening when I was 17 in 1984 was that I had the highest grade point average um, by weight, you know, so that the film documents how that works. It's not just that you get an A or a B in a class. It depends on what kind of class you take. Um, and when I was in high school, I had three APs, I think. I just learned exactly, I've relearned exactly how many I had because in the events that happened after, which I'm sure we'll get to, I actually saw my transcript, my official transcript, which I hadn't seen in, you know, since 1983. I don't even think I ever saw the, the final transcript. It just wasn't relevant. In any case, um, I had the highest grade point average by a lot. You know, it wasn't even close. And I expected uh, the school officials to say to me, because I'd been talking to my uh, school counselor about what happens if you're named valedictorian, to talk to me about what would be happening at graduation, the, the sort of address I would be giving class and it kind of never happened. And so it was confusing. Um, and then in that spring, I learned that the principal um, was sort of taking an, another, I'm going to call it a girl, her a girl, because that's how I thought of myself then, 17. The other girl who was um, salutatorian by grade point average around to these events in, in, in Springfield, Illinois, where, where I'm from, you know, saying that she was, wasn't clear whether they were saying she was a valedictorian, but the top student. And so I told my mom, uh, my mom spurred into action. There was a lot of behind the scenes things that they describe actually in the documentary. But as it turned out, I was actually invited to give the address that the valedictorian gives. Um, at the graduation. However, um, I was not named valedictorian officially in any way. Um, she was not named salutatorian, by the way. We were both designated as top students and every newspaper, official newspaper article discussing our achievements, her picture always came first, even though her last name begins with an R and my last name began with an N. Um, and she was always listed first. So it wasn't even that they did a thing where her picture's first, my picture's second, but I'm for, you know, wasn't even like that. It was first, first, and then Springfield High School names top students. The clear implication, of course, is that there's a group and she's first. Um, and so, you know, how did I feel about that? I think you asked me. I felt really confused. I couldn't understand why this was happening. I knew that at least a year before they had named a valedictorian because I knew who the person was. And it was my understanding that they had for years before that. Um, in fact, uh, Roger Smith, whom you might know, uh, Michelle, I learned in this whole incident that Rogers is from Springfield, Illinois, and he was named valedictorian in 1971. And his brother was valedictorian. His name is Chris, I think. 
um, a couple of years later. So we know there's a long practice of this, but for whatever reason, the year I uh, was set to be valedictorian, they decided to change the practice. To change the rules, right? Um, to move the, the goalposts. And this is after you worked so hard. I mean, it, it's, it's not as if, you know, for some people things do come easy, but I doubt that this wasn't also an investment on your part in terms of hard work. And, you know, wondering then what that message sends to those who do that kind of hard work, but the goalposts move. You mentioned that you hadn't seen your transcript until recently, and this brings up all of that, right? It's, yeah. it's kind of like the confirmation yeah. of what was already, already in your gut. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was really interesting to see it, right? Because um, so freshman year, um, I, I think I'm getting these numbers right. It might not be exactly right, just kind of recall. Um, freshman year, I ended the year number two. Mm -hmm. um, sophomore year, I ended the year number one. Mm -hmm. Junior year, um, I ended the year number five. And that was mm -hmm. the year that I was really heavily invested in doing a bunch of other things. So it wasn't mm -hmm. just that I worked really hard. And, uh, and you were in clubs and sports and all of that. I was right. a varsity athlete. I was a cheerleader. I did all the things. <laughs> <You know? laughs> On the field and also cheering. Right. All, the th all the things. And so. Black magic. <laughs> um, first semester, senior year, I had all of these APs. You know, I had AP physics, chemistry. I had AP French. I had AP history. I, you know, I had a lot of them. And I got all A's first semester. So um, I'm, I know that I, that's the last time I looked at my grades that mm -hmm. semester. And so I knew there was no way this woman could catch me, right? Mm -hmm. Because she wasn't in any of my classes. That's sort of the key, right? She, she, didn't, she may have gotten all A's second semester, even first semester. I don't know. But she was not in any of my classes. And those were the only AP classes. So the weights are the weights. Right. And, you know, we're talking about a story that's not 1942. It's not 1962. You're talking about an experience that's in the 1980s. And it is significant because it's those experiences that further shape one. Uh, it's those experience, you know, every little bit counts. We know this is the case because there are parents that spend tens of thousands yeah. of dollars each year just so their kid, even not with the prospect of their kids becoming valedictorian. I mean, it's just with the prospect of having a certain GPA that leads them to the next stage and the next stage, right? right? And so there's a pivotal stage in which you're denied. And I wonder if you ever think about what that meant over the over the term of your career. Now, some people will say, well, look, Professor Tracy Mears is at Yale. Uh, she was at the University of Chicago. She's been a pioneer and has been knocking down walls and barriers her entire life. But even so. Yeah, there's a lot there, Michelle. I mean, so I've had the opportunity in the last month since my sister decided to make this film I want to repeat that. <laughs> my sister decided to make this film. It was important to my sister to do this. Um, and I mentioned that because for me, it was 
an incredibly painful period. Um, it was, it was confusing. Um, I had always pain right now, just in this conversation, I had always feeling and thinking of you in that time and even in the present. So I I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I understand why your sister would do that because I have a visceral response right now to just knowing that you had that experience. And so, you know, I'm a kid, right? I'm a kid who had understood that I was playing by the rules, was doing well. Um, I was well-liked by my classmates. I actually liked high school. It doesn't change my experience of high school. I actually, um, I hold up, at least at that time, Springfield High School as like a paragon of public education that was, you know, 20 years after integration, they were doing it, you know, where people were bussed from all over and such. My teachers liked me. Sorry. Um, You know, so to have that happen with the administration, I was like, I, I don't understand what this is about. And my parents were um, both trying to advocate for me. And this is the part as a parent I find heartbreaking, but also protecting my two sisters who were coming after me, right? So my middle sister, who is a medical doctor in Springfield, Illinois, the one who made the film, she was a freshman, um, a ninth grader first year (laughs) when I was a senior Um, my youngest sister who has her PhD in education uh, works for the Peace Corps. She was, I think, in sixth or seventh grade, right? And they were both coming to Springfield. So, you know, my parents didn't want to cause a kind of thing where my, my sisters would be retaliated against. So at the time, I was like, look, I'm doing this. I'm getting out whatever, you know? Um, and I never really went back. I, I didn't go there in the summers. I didn't, uh, you know, most people would go back home in the summers. I didn't, I went straight to law school, as you mentioned, the university of Chicago after college, I never went home in the summer. I always lived in Chicago. Um, and then once I graduated from the university of Chicago, um, I lived in Chicago. So I, I didn't, go back and I, you know, I cut sort of hived off that part of my life, that chapter of my life um, and went forward and did all the things. So when people ask me, were you motivated to do these things out of some sense of justice or injustice? Maybe, you know, maybe subconsciously, I can tell you it was not a thing that I consciously thought about. And in fact, It wasn't until, you know, again, this experience, realizing how much I had lost, you know, all these friends who still lived in Springfield, because, you know, most people don't move away. They all came to the film and these were people that I really liked and I'd lost touch with. And, you know, all of the relationships that I've been denied Um, And they have been denied to those people (laughs) for almost 40 years because of, you know, these people's decision to not claim me. And this is the last thing I'll say. 
I think the thing that was hardest for me to understand was why over the years when I have achieved so much, you know, you don't want to be full of that kind of, you know, hubris, but I've achieved a lot. And it was perplexing to me that a place like Springfield, Illinois would not want to claim me as their own. Right. <laughs> it's perplexing uh, to me as well. And I'm sure perplexing to our listeners. I'm going to venture a guess, though, that um, you're not alone in having been denied um, based on your accomplishments, you know, sort of de- denied a um, uh, and an honorific a position um, and, and at such a pivotal time in one's life. And I'm wondering then what this can do to people, right? Clearly you, you moved on, but at the same time, there's a way in which you didn't, because as you mentioned, you were also denied these relationships, right? It, it, it meant that because you were not centered as you deserve to be, you were not embraced as you deserve to be, that you didn't go back. Right. That you didn't go back during college, during summers, uh, that you didn't go back um, during times in law school. And that also seems in its own way, too, that it's not just friends, but it's also family as yeah. well, that then doesn't get the chance to be with you in that kind of way as well. Yeah. So I want to be clear. Um, I would ever, never not go visit my family. Of course, of course, exactly. Family is my family. Right. Uh, But it was always about my family. Uh, And the times that I did go back, sort of publicly, uh, most recently, there's an organization called Frontiers International, which is like a a service organization for Black men that my grandfather was in. And um, my father was for a time, they wear these very distinctive gold blazers. And their big fundraiser is a Martin Luther King breakfast um, that's attended by hundreds of people. You know, the Senator comes, you know, Senator Durbin and so on. I was invited to give the MLK lecture. I think it was the January before COVID. I'm gonna say it's 2019. You might be able to even see in that the corner in the photo, the, the yellow, that's one of the men wearing that, that jacket. And um, it's a photo of me that was in the paper. And that was an important homecoming for me because I was embraced by my community, right? You know, that was coming home, doing this for my grandparents. Um, But it was the kind of thing, though, Michelle, that I had to think about because it's also a kind of Springfield thing. You know, Senator Durbin was there at the front center table with my parents. Um. So yeah, it, it's, been, um, it's been a lot. And as you said, I'm not the only one. I mean, after the news of this came out, I've gotten all kinds of emails from people. This happened to me too. This happened, you know, I think even in the paper, there was a, um, the, the reporter who wrote one of the articles from Springfield at the Illinois Times one told me about uh, an incident that happened. Uh, 
um, he told me about an incident that happened in Galveston, Texas to a young black woman in like 1994. And so he did an article about me and told me about this thing that he reported on in 1994. Uh, and I think it's important for people to understand the dynamics under which this happens, right? So just to shift. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, what are yeah. the dynamics under which something like this happens? Because that's a decade after your experience. And, you know, when I think about it, you know, and, and you mentioned being a parent and what this means, and we're both parents. And I think about the experiences of my daughter, which I've written about, um, and having to be vigilant all along the way, um, as she was first in her class as well. And, uh, but the impediments along the way with, um, yeah, you know, I, I remember just when she was coming into the, the eighth grade and uh, being told by a teacher in front of the person who was supposed to be shepherding her, a young white girl, that um, to, the, to this new school, that she must be mistaken, that she was not intended to be in his class. And, you know, he's holding a clipboard and my daughter says, no, I'm sure that my name is on your clipboard. I'm supposed to be in this class. And he says, well, no, this is advanced, advanced math. And this is for very smart people. She says, but, I, but my name is, you know, she shares her name, but I'm sure my name is on the list. Uh, and then he says, well, you know, are you sure that this is the class that's supposed to be, you know, for you? And then the kind of telltale sign, which is very Minnesota, we were in Minnesota at the time, was to ask her, well, did she live in a house or an apartment? You know, all these various things that are just completely, you know, irrelevant, you know, and of course she was, not as an of course, but, you know, she was first in her class, you know, that year, first in her class when she left um, high school. But again, you know, these, these impediments along the way, um, that of course can be very demeaning, yes, be so, very destabilizing, and are meant to shame and also embarrass in some instances. Correct. And here's the thing that I think so many people don't understand, and and you know maybe this is part of the reason why I study what I study. Um, you know, I do a lot of work on how to think about how people come to conclusions about the fairness of legal authorities. And, and those authorities don't have to be legal authorities. That's just, I'm a law professor. That's what I do. But, you know, it applies to um, teachers and it applies to people in private settings, you know, your managers in a, in a business context, how people think about that. Being, it's important for people to be treated with dignity and respect. And um, when decisions are made, we look for indicia of neutrality and factuality and, um and uh, transparency, none of which happened in my situation, getting to that. Um, and we also want to be able to trust that the motives of the person that we're dealing with are benevolent. So all of these things matter in this context, okay? Um, so, you know, when you are dealing with that kind of situation, and I tell the story, people are like, oh, she was named valedictorian instead of you. And I'm like, no, that's not how it happened. It's always more subtle than that, right? And consistent with the story that you just told, right? More subtle. No, it wasn't that there was, she was valedictorian, I was salutatorian. It was, there were just top students now, even though there had been very clear signals of number one and number two before that, 
right? Um, and that kind of changing the rules allows people to say, well, there could be other reasons. There are lots of ways to be a top student. You know, maybe it should just be the people with the highest grade point average, to which I would say, yeah, but I was this, I was this, I was this, I was this, right? So maybe try it. Well, maybe it's important to just give everybody a trophy now. Well, okay, if that's true, then why have top student? Now, why do I tell that part of the story? Because social psychologists tell us that and they, are, they explore a dynamic called um, attribution ambiguity. So from my perspective as the person that's having this happen to me and people are giving these other reasons, I start thinking to myself, oh, well, maybe it's not what it seems like to me. It's very hot here today. <laughs> so I think that's why you're hearing it. You know, maybe it's not what it seems like it is to me. Maybe, maybe there is some other reason, right? Um, maybe, maybe I'm wrong and it kind of makes you feel well, you begin to, to sort of question yourself. Exactly. Right? And, you know, and what these patterns mean over time in terms of the double guessing yourself, where someone else in your position doesn't have to double guess. I mean, not only does that person who's not you as a young black girl who works as hard as, you know, for this, for the person who's not you, <laughs> that person gets to be part of an American narrative that's affirming and reaffirming all the time that this is what excellence looks like. Right. And here you are. And for other, you know, girls and women, and especially women and girls of color who have a story to tell, who have something to demonstrate in terms of excellence, when it gets denied, then that's a story that you see, they just never can really make it. Right. They, they never just really, they come close but they never really make it. And then because there is all of the stereotypes around uh, Black people that ha have existed for centuries in this country of being lazy, not working hard, et cetera, then there is the kind of mythology of, uh, well, we give this special honorific, not because that person earned it, not because they earned the grade, but we're going to just do the kind of make her top student because she was cheerleader and she played on some sports, you know, when she worked hard in some classes, um, because otherwise it is the sort of, we always have a valedictorian, but, but we can't, you know, um, and we're doing this actually to do a favor for her so that she's not, you know, embarrassed, but we get to, you know, give this, you know, kind of token. Yeah. To satisfy some members of the black community here or to satisfy this black girl who really didn't achieve it, but we're going to, you know, just call her a top student. Right. Or didn't achieve what we've always said was the top thing. I will say that whole dynamic also feeds into um, the experience that your daughter had, right? Because when those stereotypes get reified, is it surprising at all that your daughter's teacher said the thing that he said? In his mind, I am quite certain. I am quite certain he is not telling himself that he's doing this deliberately, um, you know, he's in his mind, he's, he's telling himself he's doing it for her own good, 
you know, he's trying to be fair. He's trying to make sure she has a, a good experience. I'm sure that's the story he's telling himself in his mind, because that's the way these uh, these these stereotypes create the dynamics such that I'm it's probably the case that the principal of my school, who I believe is responsible for all of this, um, told himself, well, it's good that we change the rules to do this, you know, so more people can can have a chance. And there's another stereotype that's at play here, too, that I want to bring up, and that is it's the flip side of people looking for all, all sorts of other explanations. Why do they do that? Because for many white people today, it is an absolutely horrific thing to be called a racist or to be said that you've engaged in race, you know, racial discrimination. Even on my own faculty, um, I had somebody say that. And um, in another context that I, I won't describe here, but my colleague, Philip Atiba Goff, caused that fear of being called a racist, often by white people, um, a kind of stereotype threat that they will go, a, a, you know, kind of fall over themselves to make sure that that is not a thing that <laughs> that is an, an attribution that can be given to them. And, you know, Philip Atiba Goff shows in the policing space that police officers who fear being called racist actually end up engaging in more exercises of excessive force against um, uh, individuals that they deal with rather than less. Just, just think about that, right? So you put all of these things together and we have a, a, a pretty toxic mix. We have the kid who is questioning themselves because of um, uh, attribution ambiguity. We've got the people who are engaging in stereotypic behavior, fearful of being um, you know, uh, deemed racist. And then you have everybody else around not actually confronting uh, dealing with it, addressing it because of the ways in which right. all of these things work together. That's right. Well, here's the, the, another thing. I, I, this is such a rich conversation and I'm so grateful to you. I'm grateful to your sister as well, really, because this is part of a story that is so deep and so long. For example, when you are not, when you were not taken to the various places and showcased as, look, this is the the top student in this school, you know, what that meant in terms of an, an opportunity denied for others within that community to see that, yes, this is possible. This is what, you know, working hard and excellence looks like too, to dispel then those stereotypes that get, you know, so built in um, across spaces. And in so many ways, it only reified the stereotypes, right? So you were denied the uh, honor of being valedictorian. You were also denied the opportunity to go about and the and to be featured, really, as the person who really had accomplished so much um, 
within the space of the environment and community that you were living in. And then those who were in those spaces as well were denied the opportunity to see and to celebrate that. And that to me is deeply disconcerting because we are on a multiple generations path and journey in this country with dispelling these stereotypes. You know, I'll be honest with you, Tracy, one of the things that I started doing when my daughter was very young because of what I saw in my prior work in education and because I saw what happened to her it was actually before the eighth grade that I began actually making a book every year that I would share with her teachers in the school. This is what she looks like. Here are her report cards. This is her in a tutu. You know, this is her rappelling down some hill because, you know, her dad, you know, did, you know, mountain climbing and whatnot. And she'd do that um, with him. Uh, this is what she looks like in ballet. And this is what she just looks like with mixed match socks on sitting in a park by a pond, just so that her teachers could see, you know, as a little black girl, here's the full expression of what she is, when she comes into the classroom, please see her. That's all I want you to do is to see her for who she is and to not stereotype her into something else. And I had to do that every year. And in fact, in the backdrop of that eighth grade experience, one of the school administrators said, and we showed him the book. <laughs> he saw the book. Right. And no parent should have to do that. But when you think about the experiences of children of color growing up, they'll see more representations of pandas and bears and white children in the halls of their schools and in the classrooms than they will of anybody who looks like them. And that's something that just simply gets reified over and over. I, I just have goosebumps hearing the story about the book. Wow. Um, I just need a minute. <laughs> to uh think about that um that's that's ridiculous i'm sorry um so yeah because i left i really know what happened in springfield after i left um and so i learned watching this uh documentary that my sister and her friend maria ansley made that there have been uh since i left in 1984 i believe there have been five black valedictorians in the entire school district since I left. Okay. So there's three high schools, three big high schools. Each school I think has, I don't even, I don't even want to say how many um, students there were. When I graduated, there were about 300 and Gen X is on the small side, right? I think they've gotten bigger since, but also there's been a lot of white flight in Springfield. So the teeny tiny little high schools that were teeny tiny when I lived in, in Springfield and that, you know, as, you know, uh, students in the big public high schools in Springfield, we didn't take seriously, you know, these, these schools are huge now. Um, I, I couldn't even imagine going to one of those schools, but you know, now they're well populated, you know, that's an, another story. Springfield has become even more unequal um, than it was when I lived there uh, in, in, 19, in 1984. So there've been these five kids. Um, I don't know, you know, what their experience was. Um, I don't know them really at all. Um, I think only one of them is from Springfield. Um, uh, there are a couple from Lamphere, which is sort of on the other side, other side. 
Motown, so on. Um, you know, those details are, are not readily accessible to me, but still just five, right? Um, and my sister, interestingly, so I have two sisters, as I mentioned. Uh, my middle sister, who's a doctor, hat, shares my last name. My youngest sister does not. Her last name is Blackwell. And she had, she was just telling me that when she went to high school, she showed up and there were people who looked at her schedule and they were like, oh, this is not the right schedule. You shouldn't be in this class. And they put her in, you know, the other English class because her last name was different. Right. And they, and so, and we don't all look the same. We have, we have different dads. So, um, you know, she wasn't recognizably my sister. Right. And, it, you know, once again, my mom had to do the thing. <laughs> you know what? Why, there's this thing, right, about Black women having to do the thing, like, of having to go up to school. You right. know, it just, there is the thing. That is exactly it. It is. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, th this is a whole other topic, right? People have the talk about the talk. Um, but this is a, it's a thing. I mean, so a thing. another story, this is related to the valedictorian, but not quite. When I was se seven years old, living in Spring uh, Champagne at the time, that's where I was born, um, there was a brownie meeting. I don't remember if that was in the Washington Post or is in one of the stories, but um, I went to a magnet school, grammar school for the University of Illinois. So everybody was bused from everywhere uh, to this school. And so on the day of the, our first brownie meeting, I get on the bus to go to the neighborhood where the, you know, where that where was being hosted. And it was a, a little white girl and her mom. And when I showed up, she told me that I couldn't come in. It was the same kind of, you don't belong here thing, made me sit on her front stoop until my mom came to pick her up, pick me up, not her, pick me up. My mom shows up and she's like, what the heck is happening? And so what does my mom do? She does the thing. And the thing was that she and another black mom, the only other black girl in our class, got together, talked to um, uh, another mom who's white, um, I still remember her name, Mrs. McDonald. And uh, Mrs. McDonald said, okay, I'm going to host a brownie troop. So she set up a rival brownie troop and everybody ended up <laughs> at this other brownie troop. And, you know, seven-year-old me was kind of like, oh, okay, you know, and I went on. But it's only as an adult, you know, when I was 20 or 30 where I was like, oh, wait. That you come back to process those experiences and with moms having to do the thing. And, and really the journey that you're talking about and that we're talking about together is that there can be the very pivotal denied, but there are also instances along the way of that journey for young Black girls, girls of color, it can be just girls generally, where, where there is the experience of being denied and those mount and you find ways to be resilient and the moms do the thing, right? Like black moms come and do the thing. Um, they go to the schools, they go to, the, you know, they, they, they work those things out to try to um, clear the paths, but that's a whole lot of work. That's a whole lot of work. And that's a whole lot to have to hold inside until that space where we're far enough along where we can breathe 
and we, we breathe it out because we finally arrived after all of those hurdles and obstacles that should never have been there to begin with. So I, I want to begin our wrap up, but I could spend hours talking with you about this. And I do think that hours long need to be spent on this because for some children whose parents want to be there, but can't, right. who experience these kinds of, I mean, it's just really heartbreaking. And I imagine that you might've also been one to share with your mom, like, Hey, I also saw this other thing happening. I know my daughter would do that to me. And I go up to the school about that because even if it didn't happen to be my daughter, that kind of injustice happening to another child, also something alarming. Yes. Yes. Oh, so, so much. I mean, so my daughter um, went to all my kids, but in particular, the one I'm talking about now, who just graduated from high school, went to a pretty fancy um, boarding school in, in Massachusetts. She wanted to go because it was all girls. And she never had much stuff herself, right? But as you said, she would explain to me, and the way this boarding school worked was that there were day students and, and boarding students, and the day students came from the neighborhood. They were almost all white and, and privileged. And a lot of the girls who were boarding came either from international, they were either international or, you know, from all over the country, but black and, and brown from New York and Atlanta, Detroit, and so on. And those were my daughter's friends. They also um, often got a lot of scholarship aid. And, you know, my daughter would tell me about things that happened and I would do the thing for them. I'd call them up. It was like, nope, this isn't happening. And, you know, because we paid full freight and, you know, the school knew it, but also because I have a voice and I know how to use it. And, you know, I could always just sort of quote chapter and verse um, about things that you're do they were doing. Um, and you're right. It, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of work. Uh, um, and the work can, <laughs> can really build up to a point where, I don't know, you said you can finally breathe. I, sometimes I wonder, I mean, in this whole experience, I had friends of mine, close, dear friends, you know, so, you know, we'll start in the present and move back a little bit. My dearest friends at Yale, you know, and I've been here for about 15 years. So that's the longest period I could know someone. Most of them is less than this. People who I consider in my family, you know, and they, you never told us that. And I said, yeah, I don't talk about it, you know. And then um, my friends from law school, you never told us this. And I was like, wow, really? <laughs> but then my high school room, my high school, sorry, my college roommates, I mean, you know, these are women I have been friends with since I was 18 years old. Um, one of my college roommates said to me, Trace, how could I not know this? And I thought, wow, how could you not know this? I never talked about it. And so it's been really, it's been a lot to process. I'm still processing it. You know, I still am. And it's going to take a while. I do think that it is important to, for the school to do what they did. You know, they said it in the Washington Post article that, you know, they 
gave me the award 38 years later, I made sure that it was a real award to, to yes. something you said earlier. I was like, is this real? And she's like, yes, it's a real Justin medal. I said, no, no, no. Is it real? Do you give this to everyone? Because if you don't, I am not accepting it in front of the 400 people who are sitting here. She said, no, since I have been superintendent, I give it to everyone. You know, those kinds of moments are important for those institutions to engage in, regardless of how I feel about it. Um, and knowledge of that means that you and me as moms will feel less likely that we have to do the thing. Um, but, you know, as far as me exhaling, I don't know. I, I have a, I have a few years of processing of this one, I think. I appreciate that. I, I really do. And, um, and I'm glad that you said that because I think that there are ways in which people can look at um, a title. You're the Walton Hale Hamilton Professor of Law and the founding director of the Justice Collaboratory at Yale Law School and could see that and say that, look, with such a distinguished a distinguished title, endowed chair, um, teaching at one of the most elite institutions, not just in the United States, but in the entire world, that what in the world is there to process? But the reality is that these kinds of denials, these kinds of stings, because of so much that they represent, it's not just a matter of being on stage for that one moment. These are ways in which they cut away and take away at the soul. There, there are ways in which I think one of the things that you mentioned, which I think about a lot, is belonging, right? When we see the ways in which Black people have come to suffer in the last century and today even, right? You know, do you belong? Trayvon Martin is a story of do you belong? Sandra Bland is a story of, do you belong? Why are you here? Why are you on this road? Why are you on this street? Um, when we think about um, the burning down of prominent black communities um, from Oklahoma to Florida and places in between, uh, it's about, do you belong? And I think about very recently, the stories being lifted up in California about Bruce's Beach, which is now considered Manhattan Beach, which is a story of black people buying property, having in a hotel and saying, okay, we will invest yeah. here and having their property literally stolen away from them by government and being chipped away. You know, these stories about belonging, it is so much deeper, so much more. So I'm happy that I appreciate, I will say that you mentioned how difficult it can be. And I understand it. I understand it, you know, personally and professionally too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I almost hate to respond because that was such an important, um, you know, moment that I hope listeners to appreciate. But let me just say this um, about the processing. It's that we are who we are at particular points of time. Right. And when I was 17, I was a young, impressionable kid who thought that, you know, if I play by the rules, that's all that needed to be done. And, you know, this thing happens, which makes you feel incredibly vulnerable, incredibly vulnerable. And so when my sister wanted me to come back uh, and be there for the you know, premiere of the documentary, I was nervous about it, not only because I didn't know 
exactly what was going to be in the film that I ended up seeing it before so I could be prepared, but also because I didn't want to meet that girl. And I knew that in watching this, I would have to experience all of those things that I experienced then because the feelings that I had then I had because of who I was then. Tracy now, Walton Hill Hamilton professor, if anything like that happens now, I do the thing. I, you know, I'm, I have uh, an incredible- And you do do the thing, you do. (laughs) I have an incredible suit of armor. I have an incredible suit of armor. I have made it my business in every context I have been in since, you know, the beginning of my career, which includes that run up from there to be, for lack of a better way of putting it, I'm going to out white man any hetero (laughs) as a white man in the room. That's what I do. Um, But I didn't always do that. And it's, that's the processing that integrate. I, I left her behind, Michelle. I left her behind. And all those people and all those relationships. And so the thing that I have to do now is to figure out how to embrace her while still being myself. Um, and wondering if I will still be myself, if I really embrace her, the self, the self that I know, right? who can do all the things. So that's the task. And it's a lot. Wow, that is a lot. And, and I appreciate the intimacy of allowing me to hear that. And also more broadly, our, our listeners to be able to hear that and giving some legitimacy to that kind of journey. Um, and that that journey is not something that's instant. It's not necessarily reconciled after an institution says, oh, mea culpa, uh, we recognize our mistake. That's not what ends it for us. There's still um, the scars that can remain in the journey that needs to be done. On each of our episodes, we ask our guests to help us think through a silver lining. And when I think about we'll be listening to this episode, we have diverse listenership all around the world, but I'm thinking that there are lots of parents, lots of moms who are thinking about this, who've had to like put on the armor (laughs) so that they can be ready to do the thing or who are thinking about, oh my gosh, these are the things that I've got to think about or the girls who are thinking about something happened to them and have not yet found their voice with how to articulate it. You know, what do you think, you know, is the silver lining going forward or the message that you would give to um, another Tracy Mm. who might be wondering, like, I think something's wrong here. Yeah. What do I do? Well, I mean, if it was literally another Tracy, um, that girl would go tell her parents, <laughs> right? Um, and so, you know, I spoke of the armor, uh, but I think what has allowed me to be who I am with that armor and do all of these things in the context of, you know, a lot of hurdles, that just being one of them, is because there was never a single moment in my life where I did not understand that I was loved 
completely and unconditionally, completely and unconditionally. My parents were always my advocates and my grandparents too. And th there was a community, you know, our, our church community. So that's part of the confusion, you know, that, that you have when you, when you have that kind of support staff, but support staff here, yeah, look how I translating it into my Look, it's Freudian slip. Look, I get it. People just know our other world other than the oh, yeah. podcast, as you know, Professor Mears and I have this other identity. Other identity. <laughs> um, but underneath the armor, I was always surrounded by this big fluffy blanket, you know, the, the, the fluffy blanket. And that's all I had when I was 17 was the fluffy blanket. Um, and now I have the other things. So that's, you know, the first thing, I guess I would say to that girl, um, you're loved and nobody can take that away from you ever. And nobody has whatever else has happened. I think the second thing I would say generally is um, just to reiterate something that I said, you know, for people who are leaders of institutions, regardless of how the person you that was denied or you literally denied, you have an important uh, opportunity to make things or attempt to redress wrongs, right? And you can do that regardless of whether what that person's response is. The, the obligation, I call it an obligation, but certainly the opportunity remains the same. And so take it because it's not just about that girl. It is about, as you said, the girls coming behind her. It's about the community watching, not just the communities that are denied, but the other communities, the, the rotary clubs who never, right? All of that, all of that. And then I guess the third point, because it's always good to make points in threes, uh, is that we need to talk about this stuff. I mean, you know, my sister has a, a Facebook page called No Title for Tracy, which is about this documentary. Um, where, you know, she's always pointing out things for conversations, hard conversations, racism still exists. It's all these hashtags, racism still exists, have the conversation, so on, because people need to understand the, the, all the structures that we described earlier. It's very easy to think that things are done and over because of the ways in which there is not what you know we often call in, in our world overt discrimination or um, you know overt bias. Uh, until you understand the mechanisms and, and how these things work and talk about them, and everybody understands their role, even if they're not specifically the person who's making the decision to deny, but you might be the person who doesn't say a thing. You might be the person who's not on the next school committee that makes the decision, you know, forward looking to make sure that what happened to your daughter didn't have all those. Um, it's not gonna end. It's just not. Professor Tracy Mears, the Walton Hale Hamilton Professor of Law and founding director of the Justice Collaboratory at Yale Law School. I want to thank you for joining me for this episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin as we focused on Denied. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you. 
Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. I want to thank each of you for tuning in for the full story and engaging with us. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode, where you know we'll be reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. For more information about what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com and be sure to subscribe. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons can not be delayed, and that rebuilding America and being unbought and unbossed and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever it is that you receive your podcast. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners by bringing this hard-hitting content in which you've come to expect and rely upon by subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us, please do so. Email us at ontheissues at MsMagazine.com. We do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Michelle Goodwin and Kathy Spiller are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll, Oliver Hogg, and also Allison Whelan. Our social media content producer is Sophia Panagrahi. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Natalie Holland, and music by Chris J. Lee.